Hey guys, welcome back to Bodies in the Bayous, Season 1, The Texas Killing Fields, Episode 12. I'm Morgan. I'm Gretchen. Today we are going to bring you um, four young ladies and their stories. We think it's important to cover them, even though we may not have a lot of information on them, because they have been um, abducted and murdered or their bodies have been found during the same time period that we have a lot of activity. And with that, I think we're going to get started um, with Angela Desire Kelly. So Angela Desire Kelly is definitely one of those that we just have so very little bit of information about. So what we know about her is that on March 28, 1979, her body was found on the curb of the southbound lanes of the 7800 block of Red Bluff Road. She lived in the Houston area um, at 7307 La Mesa Drive. Her hands were tied behind her back. She had been strangled. Her official cause of death was asphyxiation due to strangling. She was a 17-year-old redhead high school Caucasian student. Um, I have been able to pull up her death certificate and through a death certificate have found out that her father's name was John Wayne Kelly. He was um, alive at the time of her death and her mother's name was Bridget Helms was her maiden name. Her married name was Bodie. So her and her father had either um, been divorced or were never married. And um, Bridget then did remarry. Um, but other than that, that's really about the information that we have on her. I don't know what school she went to. Um, I have been on the Pasadena site. She's on the Pasadena, Texas uh, cold case site. And when you go on that site to get information, that is really the bulk of the information that you can find about her. I think we talked a little bit about, you know, um, how far that is from her home. Right. And it's, uh, it's about 45 miles. Okay. So where she was found and where she lives is 45 miles, so about an hour drive. Um, and she was found in March of 1979. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there is some possibilities of, of what she might have been doing down in that area. You know, we did talk a little bit about, you know, what would draw somebody from the Houston area into the Pasadena area. And there was the big Alameda Mall that was near that location, about uh, 15 minutes away. Mm -hmm. But again, without um, more information on her cold case um, from the Pasadena um detectives you know we just we just don't know we're kind of left at, at guessing um we you know don't know a lot of those questions that i know people will be asking is you know was she treated as a runaway um what i can tell you is you know we don't know when she was actually reported missing compared to when she is actually found um and so I can't really answer those questions for you. It's not, it's not a case that I can find some coverage in newspapers. Part of that is just of how the online newspapers are working in this area. There are some missing gaps and holes in the, in the years. And this is one of those years where we're just not getting information. But I think it's important if anybody out there does have information, you know, 
for me, I would like to see more of that information on the Pasadena site. So if you have information on her case, any information on, on her, maybe we could, you could reach out to the Pasadena police. They could update that file, get a little more information out there. That would be my encouragement. Certainly contact us if there's more information or things that people want. Um, known about her, we would love to expand the information we have on her case. I do know that her mother has, has passed away. She, um, she passed away in, uh, North Carolina in the last, uh, 10 years basically. And so I, there's just not, not enough there that I can contact people and try to figure out more about. So, um, but I think it's important to note She's definitely falls in the line of a lot of what these other victims were. Her hands are tied behind her back. She is strangled. Um, this is not the site that uh, she was probably strangled at from what we can gather is that she was probably dumped out of a car. Right. And, uh, and then just kind of left there. So on her, that's, that's really all we have. So we're going to kind of move forward onto another case. Okay. Sandra Drugrass was 15 years old on 12-18-1979. She lived on Galveston Island with her parents. And on that day, she was at the beach hanging out on the seawall with her friends. Her parents reported her missing that evening when she didn't return home. Law enforcement came by and took a report and they considered her a runaway. Um, her parents did admit, admit that she had run away before, but they were pretty sure that she hadn't run away at this time. I, I wonder there why they would be pretty sure that she hadn't run away at that time. You know, I mean, I believe parents know their kids and you get a feeling of like maybe when they're angry and they run off to a friend's house for the weekend versus just not coming home. Right. But I wonder what really, like, is it a gut feeling or is it just... I don't know. It you could know? be one of those things too. Like we've had other cases where parents have said she didn't take anything. She didn't, um, you know, and so maybe before when she had run away, she had taken things or she had expressed, you know, I mean, you're a parent, right? So there have probably been times you're a parent of teenagers. There's been times when one has slammed the door and said, I'm going to run away and then maybe walks out of the house. Right. Right. And so, the saying that she's run away before could have been a situation like that where she kind of stormed off, ran away, um, and then came back later. And and this, going to the beach and hanging out with some friends and then not showing up back may be out of character for her. You know, um, my thing in, is that personally, I feel like we have to stop using this runaway thing as kind of a crutch to not investigate cases. And I, I know this is 1979. So, but we well, even, definitely, and, and during this time period, that seems to be standard policing, I think. But we're, but we've you seen know? that even today, Yeah, you know, you've, you've seen that on reports today, 15 year old probably ran away with 40 year old man. You know, I mean, just recently we were seeing that in the news too. When we're talking about a 15 year old child, whether or not they ran away or not, they deserve all the attention, even if they didn't. 
once we have a child who has left the home and is no longer in contact with their parents, that child should be treated as somebody who's in danger. Sure. Because even if the situation of them running away wasn't necessarily a dangerous situation, the fact that they have run away puts them into a dangerous situation of of being in contact with people who they shouldn't be possibly, who can take advantage of the situation that now there's this person who's a runaway. And so to, to continue to look at children as that one, they have a choice in this matter, but two, that, oh, that's just a runaway, you know, and we can't go back to Sandra's whole thing. We can't. But again, I just feel like going forward, you have to get law enforcement to realize that, and even adults, really. I mean, when people go missing, we should do everything we possibly can to get the word out there and find these people and locate them and make sure that they're safe. Right. So I agree. Um, and, and so here she, here it is, you know, she's, she's gone and her parents are basically on their own, you know? And so again, you have a situation like we've seen before where parents are reaching out to friends and family members, you know, you possibly have flyers going up. They're trying to find out what happened to their child, you know, and, and because she's treated as a runaway, they're doing that on their own. Right. And so it's not until um, there's a hurricane that comes into the into the Gulf, you know, and you have the high winds and everything that we have with the hurricanes. And then a couple of days later after the hurricane, um, you've got uh, some young people who are hanging out on the beach at West Beach and 18 mile road, which if you're familiar with Galveston Island, you have the town of Galveston and then you, um, and that's very centrally located on the largest part of the Island. West Beach and 18 mile road is the road that drives out along the narrow strip of the Island that goes much farther out. And you have small, uh, communities, beach type communities on either side of the road there. Um, and so when you go to West beach along that road, um, you're just kind of driving down those, that road and you have a little, little resort, almost like areas, Mm -hmm. you know, where those homes in that area, um, even, even back then in 1979, a lot of majority of those homes would have been like second homes. People would have come down from Houston or from other areas. They would have been your beach type homes. And, uh, and so they're, they're on West beach, you know, um, having a good time. And a lot of those homes do also get rented out a lot of times to your plant workers. So, you know, I mean, there's a little bit of that, you know, nomads between people that come and go from there too. Right. And, and certainly those houses have been rented to, you know, people who are all trained. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're talking about a lot of people who are in and out of the area. It's like Airbnb in the sixties and (laughs) seventies. So in beach type communities. Mm -hmm. So you have, dotted houses out there a good amount of those houses would have been on stilts at that point they are almost 90 percent of them now i don't Mm -hmm. don't think you see much that that's down on the sand and and so the farther that you go out on there you have west beach jamaica beach several other tag beats and those are houses built right on the beach um and so west beach is one of those beaches you can kind of drive into the beach and just 
pop out your uh, picnic stuff and just kind of hang out on the, on the beach there for the day. And uh, so they were hanging out there and they noticed that there was a skull that was partially buried in the edge of the sand dune. Um, so they picked up the skull and took it to the Galveston Island State Park and said, hey, we found this. And uh, the Galveston Island State Park uh, officials then called the police and said, you know, we have a human skull that's here. Um, What's kind of important just to touch on that just a little bit too, because you said this is after maybe a tropical storm or a hurricane when they find this skull, you know, her body could have been dumped you know, in surrounding areas and washed up at that point. I know you briefly have mentioned that you think maybe she'd been buried out there, but after a hurricane like that, all kinds of things get washed up, Sure. you know, along shore. And, um, you know, her body wasn't found with the skull. Um, it was a little bit later, oh, actually. Was, okay. I, more pieces of her body actually were found. In the when, same area? Okay. When the sheriff's department, um, what her news of the discovery of the skull, um, the investigators, it was a guy named uh, Danny Perez. Um, so her skull is found on Friday and then on Monday he's out there. He finds the jawbone on West Beach. Um, then he finds a human leg in that dune, forearm. Um, and, uh, all, and all, all dismembered? It was all dismembered? Um, I certainly you know kind of kind of in that in that dune but yeah i mean i'm thinking that you know it's it's it, not a whole skeleton there you know um because you're talking about just bits and pieces the medical examiner's office does go out there and search for more human remains um and then they do actually find um more human marine aids at that time. And they find that, that um, in the skull bone that she had uh, her wisdom teeth still. So at that point in time, they um, basically are saying that they know that this was the skull bone of a, of a young person. And then with that, doing a little bit more examination, then they did make the determination that this was a woman. There was a small amount of blonde hair still attached to the skull a handful of hair was found on the beach. So with that information, definitely, I think we can say that she didn't necessarily probably did not wash up, that she probably was in that location. And then maybe with the high winds and everything that, that that's blowing or, or the winds in the water are going to tear those dunes down. I mean, that is the one thing that we know about beach erosion is when you get the hurricanes into this area, they start to tear those dunes down. And so we start to have the beach erosion. So that would be my guess of kind of what's happening. Um, so the medical examiner at that time says there were missing persons in the area who matched the description of the skull that he believed was a young teenage female. Um, and I think that, that there possibly were, you know, other than Sandra, I think we do have a few other missing people. Um, and so, you know, so he's probably going through those missing files and stuff. I mean, remember at that point in time, you still have both the Dickinson girls who are missing too. And so when they're looking for people who are, who are missing, they're going to broaden their area and say, um, who else is a possibility who could be out there? Um, and, you know, you're probably looking all the way from the Houston area because you never know whether or not um, young girls hitchhiked down into that area, you know, to hang out at the beach for the day. Um, so they do start um, 
start looking for who this could possibly be. They did find a few more um, bones too. Um, and so at that point he's trying to put down, put together a skeleton. Um, I'm not exactly sure. It, I, it was at least probably a week later when it was, when finally they do let the parents know that the, body is believed to be that of Sandra DeGrasse. And, um, and then I think through uh, dental records is how they actually make that determination that that was her. Um, so unfortunately, what you don't know is how long she'd been out there, you know, if she had actually run away or how long she'd been out there. So police also deter, um, police through that say the manner of death was um, the cause of death was undetermined, but the manner of death was um, homicide. And so that's kind of, that's kind of interesting because if you have no cause of death, how can you say that it was homicide? And so the, the reason why is that she didn't bury herself out there. Oh. So, you know, that is kind of the one thing that, that the police will basically say is that the one thing that you can certainly know is that, you know, if you have a body that's buried, she, she didn't bury herself. Right. Okay. So I think if she, if they really had determined that she had been the water and washed up, it would have been probably more of an undetermined, um, that the, uh, manner of death is undetermined and the cause of death would probably be undetermined at that point too. Um, so, you know, now, now the police decide that, you know, it's time to do a little bit more of an investigation. And through that investigation, they begin talking to parents, they begin talking to her friends, um, begin talking to people in the neighborhood. Um, eight months too late. Yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. They determined that the last time that she was seen was around 11 p.m. on December 18th, but that she had likely died in the early morning hours of the 19th. Police began to narrow the search onto a man called Keith Blair Smith, who was 24 years old, and he was known to the victim. He lived down the street from her. And so, so Keith Blair Smith... Um, he's working at a hotel. He lives down the street from her. He was kind of known to talk to her. So through contact with her parents and stuff like that, they, you know, start to determine and then talking to her friends that she had gone out to see him. Um, he moved right after she went missing. Wow. And uh, so he, he's a 24 year old man. He has a job there in, in Galveston and she goes missing and he up and moves to Austin. Um, and so when he wanted, when the police wanted to question him, they actually went up to, um, Austin to question him. And as they're sitting there questioning them, him, he admits that he and Sandra had been together the night that she re reported missing. And um, he said that they argued. He threw her up against the car. She um, kind of fell, hit her head on the metal uh, door frame of the car, and died. And then he panicked, and he buried her in the dunes. And so then at that point in time, he is held on her death. 
and um, is convicted of killing her. You know what gets me every time is it's always an accident. She accidentally fell, you know, but I'm going to panic and bury her body because it's an accident. You know what I mean? Like you hear that so many times, like time and time again. Right. If it's truly an accident, truly an accident, wouldn't he be freaked out and call call somebody and try to save their life? Well, you know, I mean, I guess is is what's always shocking to me is like, why is that? Why do they even think that's believable? I guess you know. I mean, probable cause. I guess. I mean, I'm a little bit over (laughs) forty. A little bit closer to the end of 40, but, um, Um. you know, and so I think that, um, you know, for me, I feel like, yeah, if somebody fell and hit their head, I, I would immediately call the police and like start to render aid and stuff. You know, the assumption that somebody would, you'd push somebody and they fall and then they would be instantaneously dead from that type of fall, you know, isn't probably one that I'm going to make anyway. If that happens, I'm probably going to be like, oh, well, you know, we'll be okay. Get the police called and, and all of that. But I mean, I guess if it's truly an accident, like, wouldn't you just be like, oh my gosh, oh, oh my God, how can I help her? Like, what can I do? I can't believe this uh-huh. just happened. Like, what's your instinct to be like, oh my God, they're going to think that I killed her. I need to go back. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know how that flips in your head if you truly, if it truly is an accident. I don't know. I mean, I kind of, I kind of wonder though, you know, because we are talking about a 24 year old individual. So I I guess if he was 17, I'd probably a little bit more believe, okay. And I can kind of understand how he panics at 24 years old. I do believe that a little more worldly too. So I, the whole idea of I panicked, I guess I'm like, well, but you're 24, you know, so you shouldn't be just like a teenager. Um, But these are different times. 24 year olds during that time period, for the most part are way more mature than the 24 year olds that we see right now, you know? So I would think in their like maturity wise, in their way of thinking would be more than a 17 year old or whatever. I just, I don't know. Right. And I think the reason that, um, personally, I don't think that she died of a fall. You know, I think that, um, you're talking about a healthy 15 year old girl who there are no accounts of her, you know, being frail or anything like that. I just find it that you can push her that hard that she would hit her head against the door frame of your car and die i just i i find that hard to believe i i personally you know just don't like off of a push yeah right now but unfortunately when you're left with those those remains and that's all you have i mean all you really have is skeletal you don't even have all the skeletons so chances are you're not able to determine whether or not she was strangled um you're certainly able to determine whether or not, you know, she shot or anything like that. But again, you have the skull here, right? So if you pushed her hard enough that she fell, hit her head against the door frame and died, you don't have a fracture of that kind either to say that that's, that's like a blunt force trauma fracture that could have happened from that. That's my other, you know, where I just look at this and say, I just can't can't get there. No, I can't get there either. But what worries me about about Keith Blair Smith too is this. 
So we know that he committed this homicide. He obviously confesses to it. But is there a possibility that he's involved in more homicides? Sure. You know, because if you look back, he's 24 years old. There are certainly other homicides that he could have been involved in, at least once on Galveston Island. Sure. You know, and so I think it's important to always look at these cases that are solved and these suspects who solve those cases and and look a little bit deeper. Okay, so now we're going to talk about um, Teresa Vanell uh, Jones, and that's going to bring us back to the Alvin area. And so if you're not familiar, again, with the Alvin area, this is an area that Colette Wilson went missing from. But just to bring you back a little bit, when we talk about the Texas killing fields, we look at that area south of Houston along the I-45 corridor or the I-6, uh, Highway 6. And so when you're talking about where Alvin, Texas is, that south of Houston along Highway 6. So kind of Highway 6 and I-45 make this triangle that eventually leads down to Galveston. Um, and so Teresa actually lives in the 18 or lived in the 1800 block of Highway 6 in Alvin, Texas. She was a 17 year old girl, went by the nickname of Terry. And on September 1st, 1980, she left in her gray, primer gray or green Chevy 1967 Nova or Impala. And so this is kind of the first part of this case that starts to get very confusing is that you have a lot of information out there that says the car was never discovered. Well, part of the problem with that is nobody can seem to um, get this make and model of this car quite there. So I'm not sure how they can ever say that the car was never discovered because if you were running VIN numbers on this car, then you should know whether or not it's an Impala or Nova. Sure. I mean, it had to be registered. Right. You know, I mean, I, I did get hung up on this when we were discussing it because it doesn't make any sense that nobody can directly, you know, or give an answer to what this is. It had to be registered to either her name or a family member's name that they could pull that information off of. Well, and what makes this even a little bit more strange is that Terry had actually bought this vehicle from her sister-in-law. Mm -hmm. And so her sister-in-law had sold her this vehicle. And what the information that we get from that is that it was a 1967 um, and that it was two doors. And some, some sites say that it was a Chevy Chevelle, but that has definitely, when you look at different places where the family has come in and kind of commented to it, they said, no, it wasn't that it was either the Impala or the Nova because when detectives showed them pictures of this vehicle, that was, those were the two vehicles that matched the best. There are different places that it say it was green and there are different places where it say it was gray from the best description that I can get from it is that it was primer gray. But anyway, she leaves in her car to drive to Houston to pick up her sister. Her sister Brenda is in Houston and is expecting her to arrive there and pick her up. She never arrives. 
And so, so then you kind of go back to what else do we know? We, we really don't. Um, so what we know is that, that Terry was one of eight children in her family. Her mother's, her mother, whose name was also Teresa Vanell. And then, um, so for when she was married to Terry's father, it was Jones. And then, um, she, he passed away and then, um, no, I'm sorry. So at one point in time, she was a Gibbs. Some of her children's last name is Gibbs and other children are actually the last name of Jones. Her first husband Gibbs passed away and then, um, she remarried a Jones and the children have the last name of her second husband. So, but we, but there's very, very little else that's known out there. Um, it's, it's not exactly sure whether or not she was um, living with her parents at the time or if she was living with, with family members out there in Alvin. Um, and um, her mother has since passed away, but certainly her sisters, her other sisters are very active online. I have tried to make a couple contacts with them. I, I do understand that not everybody really wants to be contacted by a podcast and, and make comments to a podcast, but I do feel like it would be helpful if, if we had some more information on exactly who she was and exactly what was going on in her life. But again, this one comes back to one of those two where I don't feel like she was a runaway. Yeah. You know, it just seems very strange that you have your sister up there in Houston waiting for you to be picked up. And that then all of a sudden you run away. It, one of the things that is very clear is that the family does believe that she is, that she is dead. Mm -hmm. So, and then, you know, these cases are always very confusing when you have these victims who are in a car because you always go back to, if they're in a car, you feel like they would be safe, right? They're, it's, they're not hitchhiking. They're not wandering around the streets. They're not, you know, um, taking rides with friends. They're in their own vehicle. And so how do you get them out of the vehicle? And then with this case, not only out of the vehicle, but then for the vehicle to completely disappear. So I think one of the things that we do have to look at here is, is there a possibility of a car accident that happens with her where both her and the vehicle go off the road? Yeah. You know, and we do know that there are a large amount of vehicles that are in these bayous from either people being put off the road, driving accidentally off the road, or people trying to get rid of cars and them going off the road, or the hurricane activity that pushes some of these vehicles into the bayous. But we know at one point in time, there was an article in the Houston Chronicle that said 57 uh, cars were pulled out of one bayou. Yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy too. Uh -huh. And that's only one small area yeah, that they sure. were trying to clean out and they pulled out like 57 cars at that point in time. So, you know, they're, although, you know, this case is certainly presented as the very good possibility that there could have been foul play out there. I do want to say that there's always the possibility that there wasn't any foul play. Mm -hmm. You know, and, I mean, and it just makes you wonder, like, have they gone back on that route? Have they looked? I mean, I'm sure they did, you know. I mean, in great yeah. detail. I mean, are they going to send divers out there? You don't know because there would have to be some sort of evidence that 
there's obviously something that happened in this spot. Maybe there's a call. You know what I'm, I'm Yeah, gonna, because you're talking about a long yeah. stretch of road up into Houston. In, um, we don't know the exact location that she was going to. Her family certainly did at that point in time. And so I'm sure that they have. But again, even when you're going from Highway 6 into Houston, there there's very, very easy ways to go. But you can easily get pulled off there, too. Mm-hmm. You know? And sometimes you get stuck in traffic and you're like, Oh, okay. If I go traffic's uh, the first thing that'll get you pulled off the road around here. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, there's always the possibility that unfortunately she just simply met with an accident. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the things that does come up in this is that in 1982, her sister, Gina LaDonna Gibbs, who went by the nickname Donna was murdered in Jacksonville, Florida at the age of 22. Mm -hmm. And so there are on a lot of these web sleuth websites, a lot of different places. There are people who say that these two cases are, are connected together and that probably whoever killed Terry killed Donna several years later. Um, And you can see why they would want to connect that because there's not, the information out there. Right. I mean, you can definitely see where people would speculate. It is very odd. Right. And I went down the rabbit hole trying mm-hmm. to find information on, uh, on Donna's case also to try to, to try to figure out, you know, what exactly it was that, um, you know, that w- how exactly she was killed, what were the circumstances of her case, you know, those types of things. Um, and this is, again, goes back to kind of that soapbox that I'm going to get on here. It's it's nice to have these cold case websites where you can pull up these these cases and try to find out a little bit of information. So to give you information on what Gina LaDonna's case has, it has um, her exact date of death, the apartment or the, um, the location of her murder. And that is it. That's it. So on some of the web sleuth pages, it says that she was killed in Nassau Bay, Florida. She actually was not. She was killed in um, Jacksonville, Florida. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing I can clear up here, which is not even in Nassau County. It's actually in a Duval County. Um, but other than that, other than the fact that it's a homicide, other than the fact that it's an open case. And again, I've sent out an email to get, try to get more information back. And, and what I did get with that email was that these are an open case. And then if you have any information that I can send it to them, well, I don't, I don't have any information. I'm just trying to find out information so that, you know, I can, I can bring some light into these two women's case. I mean, this is two members of the same family that are, gone yeah their her you their know? mother had to be devastated yeah you know especially not having answers you know and and there are a ton of pictures that her sisters have put together with the children all together and you know this family in the 70s of all of these kids and and you know you can tell from this that there's a lot of love there and mm-hmm. to not have any answers and to not have any information really out there at all is is devastating so 
through that, I have done at the best that I possibly can to find any bit of information. And what I can tell you at this time is that she was married to a guy named David Ray Williams. Um, she was either married or she was in a relationship with him. I do not know whether or not they were legally married. What I can tell you is that I did not find a marriage certificate between the two of them. I do find a marriage certificate for him in 1972 to another woman. And I do not find a divorce. So I don't know, you know, some of that's from, from the searching on the, on these types of ancestry sites. Some of it's just because those, that type of information may not have gotten picked up. And so it's just maybe that that year hasn't been uploaded yet, but I do know that she had two children. One child, it appears, was not David's. And then the other child, it does appear, was David's. Um, the children are a girl and a boy. And it was the girl who, it does appear, was David's. And the boy who appears was not. Um, her family, a family member of hers, actually shared a piece of her diary where it it's in her own writing talking about how she's pregnant at the time and, you know, her relationship a little bit with, with David and, you know, kind of her feelings about bringing on another child. Um, and, uh, and it kind of a little bit of her hopes that her and David will be able to make out work out this relationship. And that, that is shared out there. I don't want to share the exact wording, but what, what I can tell you is that she was five months pregnant at the time of her murder, but I don't know how she was murdered. Um, and any other information there, I just cannot find out at this time. So if somebody does want to come forward and kind of share those information, I think what we would love to do is do an update on any of these cases and give more information on any of these cases to see if we can get out more information there so that that people have things that maybe we can put together a little bit more um, detail, but that is basically all I have. I do know that, that um, David has passed away also. Um, and, you know, we, we really would hope that the family would be able to find some closure on not only, you know, Terry's case, but also Gina's case. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I don't, I don't think we have anything else. On Nothing that. I don't have. So um, <clears throat> next we're going to bring you a Jane Doe. Uh, we do refer to her as the Danbury Jane Doe simply because of her location. And um, we do have several other Jane Does that come up. So it's kind of, I guess, if you want to say the nickname we, we put on her. Yeah. Um, so the Danbury Jane Doe. Um, So Hoskins Jane, I mean, Denbury Jane Doe is found in an area known as Hoskins Mound, which is outside of uh, Danbury, and it's um, surrounded by small bodies of water. So you have several bayous in there um, and a lot of um, streams and that kind of stuff headed into, you know, water pulling off. And um, it was November 11th, 1980, when a rancher working cattle in a pasture located near County Road 3 and approximately a half mile off of FM 2004. So this is right near the town of Denbury, Texas, which 
we've talked quite a bit about like Alta Loma, some of that area. Um, this is definitely your highway six area, but quite a bit farther off. And I think we're bringing you this um, Jane Doe because it's important in the fact that even though it's a bit farther off than what we're looking at, when you have these murdered and missing women, it it's right still in that Galveston, south of uh, Houston type area. And um, so he's working some cattle and he actually finds a skull. He calls the uh, sheriff's um, department. Captain comes out, um, looks around the area and um, finds more bones other than just the skull. Um, finds um, some uh, leg bones. I uh, think there are a few other bones found within proximity to the um, skull and near a drainage ditch. The skull is pretty well bleached out, um, but there are some teeth in the skull um, missing two front teeth or two upper front teeth. Um, and then um, there's no dental work evident. And what's confusing about this is when it, when the report that you get says that they're missing two upper teeth, um, I'm not getting enough information to say whether or not those two upper teeth were always missing. So this would be a person who would have a gap in their front teeth, but in the upper front part of their teeth, or if this was something that happened um, either like right before their death or right um, shortly after. Or as their, a result right, of, or, yeah. or, or you're, or, you know, after they died, you know, that these two teeth might have, have possibly come out. Um, and um, we know from the forensic evidence that has been done on the skull and the other bones that this is a female. Um, the female is believed to be between the ages of, I think, 17 years old, roughly about, or... Uh, actually, she's thir between 13 and 16. Okay, 13 to 16 mm -hmm. years old. So within the relatively same ages as, as some of our victims. And, um, and I think you have a little bit more that you did on um, Denver, Texas to give people an idea of, you know, how big this area is. So, right. So Danbury, Texas is less than a one square mile and the population in the, in 1980, when her um, body was found was at 1,371 people. So it's, it's very, small community um where i would think if if she was from that community she might have been identified a little oh. bit quicker or you know maybe there would have been some connection in the community um what's hard about this for me is that she is a jane doe in the age like just to be you know 13 14 maybe 15 16 years old and nobody's missed you or looking for you kind of gets to me um so denbury is in Brazoria County, which is the same county as Alvin. Correct. Okay. So when I look at this, I think, okay, we do have Teresa who goes by Terry out there in Alvin who goes missing shortly before this victim is found. You know, is it a possibility that this is her? Right. You know, and 
I have a harder time thinking that they may be connected just because when they originally found the, this body of Jane Doe, it was estimated that she could have been missing anywhere for, or been dead from 1975 to when they found her in, in 1980. Um, because these remains are fully skeletonized. Mm -hmm. So I would, I'm guessing that even with the conditions that we have out here in Texas, um, that probably if it was um, Terry Jones, that she wouldn't have been fully skeletonized by that time. Unless maybe she was in the water. I don't, I don't know. Maybe I not. think the water would make it worse. Uh -huh. Honestly though, because with the conditions that we have wet flesh right. and heat, I don't, I don't know about that. Okay. You know? And so her manner of death is undetermined. It is. Right. And her cause of death is also undetermined. It is. So I think in, in and they were saying there was no fingerprints, you know, because of the condition that she was uh -huh. found. So, so I think unfortunately, you know, unless she can be linked to somebody, you know, you're you're not gonna know, you know, whether or not there was foul play in this, except for the location that she's found. It's not necessarily a location where somebody would just kind of wander off to. You know, it does seem like that she was put in this location in order to hide her, her body. I, I agree with that. Too. You know, so I think that more and likely we are looking at the possible homicide for this, this victim, you know, and could she possibly tie to somebody else along the Texas killing fields? I think, you know, there's always the possibility. And, you know, when we talk about DNA, I think it's important to note when we were talking about um, Terry Jones earlier, for a lot of people out there, they really felt like she was one of the unidentified people who were buried in Calder yes, Field. Yes, yes, because of the gap, like we were talking about teeth, the gap in her teeth. Right. So, um, yeah, Terry had a significant gap mm -hmm. in her teeth that was noticeable. Um, and so because one of the Jane Doe's who was buried in Calder Field also had a gap in her teeth, police did go out and get DNA from this family. And I'm sure the family the Jones family, the Gibbs family was hoping that this would finally answer the question. But now that all the victims have been identified and called their field, you know, it is known that that is not her. Right. So, um, but again, you know, this is somebody's child. It is. That, yeah. that gets me with the, how young she could be. Mm -hmm. That just gets me. So our, our hope would be in bringing this to everybody's attention that maybe there's possibly somebody out there who knows something, especially such a small area. But I do agree with you. If she was from a town that is that small and went missing, at some point in time, it probably would come up. Oh, whatever happened to so-and-so. Mm -hmm. and, -so. and, and a lot of your, your, count, your cities in Brazoria County are relatively small like uh -huh. that. And, um, but the county does seem to come together, I uh -huh. guess, like Brazoria County. Um, I just feel like if she was from even, let's just say Alvin or, you know, any of those small surrounding areas with Rocheron, you know, that you have in there, I think it would, there would have been a connection somehow. Uh-huh. You know, if they're bringing her out of Houston down there, maybe not so much. And I mean, we touched a little bit on the Calder Road victims today, you know, by talking about the, the possibility of matches of DNA. And, and that is, you know, we're, we're slowly but surely headed into that direction in the next, um, not 
not probably the next episode we'd like to really fill in a few more of these victims that there's not a ton of information out there on and then um we should be you know kind of moving in the direction of the um the victims who are buried in what is calder field often referred to as the texas killing field or at least what is what is considered kind of the heart of the area of the mm -hmm. texas killing field which is where four victims were buried which is i think where we initially thought we were going to start <laughs> and um it was much bigger than that it yeah. was surprising how much bigger than that it was for me right i mean when we when we <clears throat> first started talking about doing this podcast we really felt like you know we were just going to start off with the victims on on calder road and in calder field and um and in doing that we just found out that it was so much more. And I think we really even felt when we first started that it would be like two or three episodes and then we would be, you know, going into that and to be 12 episodes in and not even scratching the surface yeah, not, is mind blowing so. to me. It is. And then talking, we probably have at least one or two more, before, yeah. but really maybe even more before we hit that. Right. And so, you know, um, we are headed in that direction. We've, you know, kind of gotten into the 80s, which is when some of that starts, but um, really want to make sure that we cover any of these other victims who could be connected to that. And I, you know, again, when I look at, you know, these victims that we're talking about today, when you, when you look at um, Terry who goes missing, you know, I, I still say, you know, she could have been a person of foul play because you have Nina Klug who was also in her car too and then ended up being a, a victim of, of foul play there you know or it's a possibility that something happened to her that was just simply an accident and she has disappeared you know it's hard to believe that you could just drop off the face of the earth for so many years on, on just an accident and not have somebody stumble upon something, what had happened to you. You know, just you know? something, especially, you know, because in a lot of these cases, when the victims are found, they're found by people that are hunting or fishing or, uh -huh. I mean, not all of them, but, you know, I mean, they're out there in the wilderness, you know, whether they're hanging out the beach or whatever it is, like, they're found by people that are out in those areas. Uh -huh. I mean, that might be why it takes so long because you're only hunting during certain times of the year and, and different things like that, but still. But again, I mean, hard. you know, with not a very good description of this vehicle, yeah, you know, the, the hope is that the VIN number is out there somewhere. And Being that, one of these people's yards that does all the hoardings of, like, the vehicles. It's just like those, like, vehicle graveyards that you see sometimes. Right, could you be know? on a salvage I mean, You know what I mean? Like, uh -huh. it could have just been, like, oh, this has just been on my property all the yeah. time, you know? could have been crushed years ago. And, I mean, and people so. buy property that it, have all that on it anyways. Uh -huh. Like, yeah, it's kind of crazy. So we just, we just don't know. But, you know, again, you know, we'll put it out there with the, Follow us on Facebook at Bodies in the Bayous. <laughs> at Bodies in the Bayous. At Bodies in the Bayous. Email us at Bodies in Bayous at Hotmail.com. And, uh, you know, as always, we, we love to hear from anybody about anything. And if there are any updates on any of these cases, we will certainly bring them to you. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Bye. Signing off.